Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 85th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that never opts into betting on the arena. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic Singles and Sealed product, with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, good evening, James. Good evening, everybody. Glad to be here and looking forward to our 85th episode and all the good stuff we've got for you this week. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, read articles by some of the best financial minds in the the hobby, and get early access to this podcast. Did uh, you and Cliff have fun while I was gone, Travis? Sure. Uh, Cliff is always a blast to have on. His audio is a little sketchy at times. We weren't able to nail that down. So I apologize, especially for the first episode, if that caught you unawares a couple times. Um, But yeah, it's always a good time to have Cliff. Yeah, we'll see if we can work that out so that when I'm off in the middle of nowhere getting pummeled in the face by waves... Uh, Cliff can still deliver some super high quality entertainment for all of you. Yep. Did you enjoy your surfing vacation? Got my ass kicked. It's one of the first times I've gone on that that vacation uh, and not trained hard for a month ahead of time. And there's a huge difference oh. <laughs> when, when there's a hurricane pushing like six foot waves up from the south and uh, the ocean's just tossing you around. You know what people don't realize about surfing is that the getting up and like riding the board is actually the relatively easy part, uh, especially if you have like, I have a background in skateboarding and snowboarding. So that part's like a slam dunk. I can get up on a wave and ride it any day of the week. But the really athletic part of surfing is the paddling out behind sets of waves and passing by three or four waves um, that are repeatedly like smashing over you and escaping that crash zone and getting into the back of the lineup where you can just relax and get ready to catch something. And we just, we were just getting pummeled and the locals were just buzzing by us and laughing. I, uh, I always kind of figured that, you know, the little bit of surfing I've seen, I'm like, once you get on like getting up on the board, like that's a balance, like that's a skill thing. Right. But that doesn't seem physically exhausting, but I watched them swim out and I'm like, Oh my God, I'd be tired before I made it out past the first wave, much less far enough to do this once. Like I, I like the one where they get pulled out on the jet ski. That's the one I'll do. <laughs> yeah. My, my partner, uh, in crime, Alitza paddled out on her own while I took care of Alara on the beach and a few different times. And some of the beaches we were at were just pretty advanced, and she was just <laughs> getting tossed around. It was crazy. Yeah. And and there was this like slight slim possibility that the hurricane was going to go up the east coast instead of the the west coast of Florida. So we had our eye on the the hurricane chart the whole time. Mm-hmm. That would uh, certainly get intense pretty quick, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, surf, we were in the, surf four blocks into the city. Yeah, I mean, we were outer on the south end of the Outer Banks in North Carolina, so it was like looking relatively safe, but we weren't 100% sure. Yeah. 
All right. Well, this week uh, we have a show in three segments. Our first segment is our top movers. We'll talk about the cards that have increased the most in price over the past week. Segment two is our cards to watch. These are cards James and I think will rise in price. And segment three is our topic of the week. We're going to revisit Magic Arena because it's a pretty big one. And I know you've got a lot to say on it. So we will jump in here at the bottom of our segment one list. uh, And I am going to start us off with Sylvan Ranger, and we're looking at the promo edition. Uh, I believe this was an FNM copy, right? Is that what it was? Um, but it started out the week at like just under $3, and it's up to around 6 now for a little over a double up. So nothing tremendous, but definitely some movement there. And I'm pretty sure this is due to, uh, to supply, because I don't know what else would trigger Sylvan Ranger to jump in price. Yeah, I've noticed that the like WPN cards and some of the older FNM promos that see any modicum of demand have been getting targeted. There seems to be like some spillover effect from the the pretty intense interest in MTG finance over the last couple months. Um, it, this is not a super high priority card in my books, and I, I don't love going in on it at this price. Um, kind of thing that. Oh. Could be... Okay, I got I got something here for because I'm taking a little bit of a closer look. So there are two copies of this card. There is a, I guess there's two gateway promos. One of them, they appear to be identical, except one of them has the DCI logo in the, for, for the set symbol. And the other one has the star, like the whoosh. Um, and they have the different foil background behind the text as well. The one with the DCI logo, there's like 200 of them or, or more for like 30 cents. It's the one with the swoosh, which there are no Nearman copies of. So either that copy is extraordinarily rare. I mean, actually, that's it. I don't know what else it would be, why that one would be so much more than the other one when they're identical in every other way. Right. Yeah, hmm. I think it's just a low supply thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what's next? All right, we've got Hate Flare moving from the foils moving from five fifty to twelve dollars. That's an even tied card. Keep in mind that that those sets were underproduced versus most modern Magic sets. Um, it was a bit of a lull in Magic popularity, and so anything that becomes suddenly useful um, from those sets uh, tends to be a hard to find and b pretty likely to spike. In this case, I'm pretty sure Hate Flare is to do with Marisol the Pretender. Um, Marisol being the new commander, Grixis wizard commander that gains abilities from cards and graveyards. And Hate Flayer's ability uh, lets it uh, untap from a tapped position and then tap again. Um, so it like combos when you have Marisol set up with some other uh, abilities from the that have been exiled um, with her cage counters. And I can't remember what these specific combos are. Um, but I'm not surprised to see this card make a move. And as long as Marisol stays popular, then these cards probably hold or even gain a little bit. Sure. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, being from Eventide, Shadowmoor type of thing, they're so uncommon. Like, just there's so many, there's so many fewer of them on the market that the demand necessary to really push the price on those is far less than you would see on virtually anything else comparable. Yeah, I mean, it basically gives Marisol an untap for three. Um, that deals damage equal to her power to target creature or player. So that's a nice, you know, a nice way of untapping and then going through another tap cycle with some other ability. Um, yeah. and you could you could do that back and forth, um, assuming you've got enough mana. Yeah, she's uh, certainly capable of doing some pretty sick 
pretty nasty stuff there. Um, is, it, is it Strionic Resonator that, that reduces uh, activation costs on cards by two activated abilities? No, Strionic Resonator is the one that you can copy triggered abilities. Uh, reduces activation costs is the, in Training Grounds, the blue enchantment for one from... Uh, it's not World Wake. Uh, no, it's, it might uh, be Rise of Eldrazi, yeah, but it's like nine dollars. Yeah, yeah, it but got you, expensive a while right, ago. So, so resin training grounds could probably fits into that deck. Oh, I think it's Rings of Bright Hearth. I'm actually thinking of that's the oh the one that copies them. Yeah, that copies uh copies the ability. Strionic Resonator targets triggered abilities, not uh, activated abilities. So it's Rings of Bright Hearth, not Strionic Resonator. Um, gotcha. All of those, all of those things that are interacting with untapping or tapping Maricel or letting her use her abilities multiple times or all seem like slam dunks in that deck. Yeah. Yeah, they are. So if, I mean, if you're playing that deck, that's what you're doing it for. I don't know if the deck's actually any good. Uh, that seems like a little bit of a stretch to me, but uh, yeah, I mean, if that's what you're in the market for, those are your best choices. I mean, um, the, question, the question is what that deck does when it's not having an easy time dumping their, the requisite cards into the graveyard. Yeah, because so many of the like think people are playing cards like Infernal Denizen from I think Ice Age, which is like a seven casting cost black creature that can uh, eliminate another creature on the board when it taps, which is a great ability to give Maricel, but a terrible card to be holding in your hand if you don't have a way to discard it. So it needs to run a critical mass of discard outlets um, to get the whole thing set up. And I think that could lead to some awkward draws where you're getting, you know, a bunch of rampant bat or a bunch of bad creatures and maybe some kill spells and not seeing any of the discard spells. Oh, yeah. The deck definitely is going to suffer from that if not built properly. If you go in too hard on always having Maricel in play with a bunch of abilities, it's just not... Yeah, you're going to have pretty lopsided games. You know, Every now and then your opponents won't be able to answer and you'll get to run wild, but for the most part, that's not going to happen. And they're going to answer your Maricel and you're going to be like, well, all these cards in my hand are really bad. Um, okay, next up is Glacial Fortress. Uh, foils from M12 we're talking about at the moment. Started the week at around 5 and change, up to about $10, $11, s There's a lot of prints of Glacial Fortress, of course. Uh, for the most part, they're all right around there as it is. Um, I see one near mint 2010 copy, some 2013 copies up around 10 and 11. Uh, um 11s up in the six or seven dollar range so it will probably pull up a little bit too um this is mostly because it was just reprinted in uh ixalan so it or, is now going to be legal again yeah. so i guess these are people who are looking for the old art which was fine i suppose yeah they want the the og original copies for their standard decks but the, the funny thing here is the, the new art for Glacial Fortress is some of the best land art in a while. Um, it's a super sweet, like, pirate graveyard uh, in and amongst some icebergs. It's going to look amazing in foil. I think I would go with the new ones rather than the old ones. And then with Rootbound Crag, similarly, this is the Rootbound Crag that has the Tyrannosaurus Rex roaring on a cliff. So that's obviously the Rootbound Crag to play from now on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like this new Glacial Fortress. The old one isn't bad, but... Um... The new one's pretty cool looking too. So eh. I don't know. So, uh, whenever you get these standard reprints, the old versions of the cards skyrocket in price. And I just kind of like shake my head and I'm like, who actually wants these? Who needs these? Like, Whatever you guys, whatever you feel compelled to do here. <laughs> it's interesting that when standard's doing well, 
when people are attending and participation is high. You can have these cards that have just re- been reprinted and have been printed five, six, seven times in the past. But if everybody needs four of them for their for their standard box, then they can still spike pretty fast. Yeah, which we will see uh, in just a moment. But what is our next card here, James? Logic Knot Foils from Future Sight. This is the original printing of the card with a unique border moving from 15 to 35. That's a $20 gain or about 133%. Continues to see play in blue control decks and modern, sometimes as a two or a three of, um, making use of. It's a delve card, right? That's the one that uh, lets you abuse your graveyard a little bit. Yeah, it's basically delve. It's delve counterspell. Uh, so it's for each card you delve or pay mana, I think. They have to pay an extra one. It might only be delve. I don't have it in front of me. Something to that effect. So it got... Um, you know, it's always been on the fringe of modern. It's never quite been good enough, but it's with the Death Shadow decks kind of funneling all of that stuff into their graveyard. They have been a lot more interested in delve cards than most of the decks in that format have been in the past. Yeah, and blue-white control and other blue control variants have been getting better lately as they find configurations that can attack the you know relatively stabilized modern metagame. Mm-hmm. And, and so Logic Knot's been seeing a little bit of a, you know, a resurgence. And because the future site frames are probably safe, like I, I don't think it's the kind of thing that they're going to choose to revisit in the twenty fifth set. And if it's not there, then they like when would they ever do it? Um, tends to le- lead me to believe that these, so long as this card is played, regardless of it, whether it sees a reprint, the original foils are still going to push. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, it's definitely set up well for that. I don't think we're going to see the um, the future site copy back basically ever. I don't know where they would put those borders. Um, and I also don't think it's a border that they're really eager to return to, honestly. Um, okay. So next on our list is opt, uh, <laughs> opt was, so we're looking at the invasion of copies, non-foil, um, jumped from about a dollar to two fifty. uh, foils are gone, completely gone. So, I mean, if you find one, good job, you're paying like $70 for it at this point, probably. Uh, and as we alluded to with. Glacial Fortress, this is another one of those cards that was, you know, 30 cents prior to this. It gets reprinted in standard, and now uh, the price on the, you know, just a normal original invasion copy has gone up. Now, this one's a little different than Glacial Fortress because Glacial Fortress had 45 copies, you know, printing prior to this um, and also isn't new to modern. But that is not the case with Opt. This is Opt's first modern legal printing. So I expect to see this move into the format pretty fast pretty quickly uh, and pretty convincingly. Um, so people basically just want the old art with, uh, I think that's Hannah, but I could be wrong. No, you're right. Um, and yeah. So it's a nifty, nifty little card. The new art's not bad either, but it doesn't have the the flavor of the old one, you know? Yeah. And I mean, this was the, the uh, like, be jealous of the bulk guys at, like event of the week, right? Because... <laughs> There are tons of ops sitting around in bulk boxes that are going to come out of the woodwork. Just in the super collection alone, I pulled like 17 or something. Yeah. Um, and you're not going to make like any money selling them in onesie twosies, but you can start trading. This is the kind of thing that I would love. And anything under five bucks is when I start seriously looking at buy lists. Um, because selling a play set of like an $8 play set on eBay is just not where it's at. But yeah. if I can ship like 30 copies of it in at, you know, 275 uh, a card or something, then, you know, and get the fo- the trade-in bonus and, and credit and use it to go buy something, well, like the, one of our picks this week, then that's that gets me a little bit more excited. Yes. Yeah, I completely agree that um, 
it's one of those cards that even if you had advanced knowledge that opt was going to be printed in this set and you could go out and buy two or 300 copies for 40 cents, I'm still not sure it would be worth your time. Like, oh, I, th- just... I think that purchase is worth your time as long as the buy lists want enough copies. Because the thing, well, yeah. like, it, it's the question here is, can you get, can you fill the buy list requirement before everybody else? <laughs> like if, if Doug Johnson is going to hit his bulk boxes before you are, he might fill in all the buy list orders. And by the time they, they need more copies for standard or whatever, they're getting them from their Ixalan orders. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. Don't worry if you miss us. Like, yeah, it's <laughs> and uh, in the future, you should not buy into these, um, this type of thing. So if they reprint, I don't know, some other effect of this type, uh, which I'm not thinking of at the moment. Um, I mean, these old cards that are getting their first introduction to modern and the non-foils are not worth your time if it's something like this. Now, the foils are another story. Uh, I'm a big fan of trying to snag foil, original print foil commons and uncommons uh, when they show up in new sets. Uh, I've had that, you know, to varying success. Uh, my giant pile of foil lay of the lands is... Uh, a reminder that you don't always get there, but sometimes it's very effective. Um, but you would have had to be real quick on opt, I think, probably, because I think the foils to begin with were like $15. Yeah, the bottom, I, I'm pretty sure I have one lying around somewhere I got to track down. Um, but keep in mind, everybody, this is a common in Ixalan. So, you know, the window of opportunity to capitalize on the people that want the original printing with the weird wording, because Scry wasn't an evergreen mechanic at that point. So, the word scry doesn't appear on the original card, which is part of the allure, especially for the like people that are going to be trying to run this in their modern list. Um, yeah. You know, that window as people acquire the four copies that they didn't manage to have lying around is going to be a relatively narrow one. Uh, okay. So what have you got next for us, James? Sage of Fables uh, is, I think, the other part of several Maricel combos, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's it's wizards because she's a wizard and she puts one one counters on your wizards when they come into play. And then you can remove a counter from a wizard to draw a card. She's also a merfolk, but she I would expect that she jumped initially because of wizards. Oh yeah, I was think I was thinking of Sage of Hours, my mistake. Ah yes. Um, yeah, Sage of Hours is a Marisol combo card. Um Sage of Fables is people digging the bottom of the barrel uh for uh interesting wizards to play. Uh, I like the art on that card, though. I love that art. Yeah, I, I actually think the card's pretty solid in that deck because uh, if you look through the EDA track page for Wizards, and, and I know this because I stumbled upon Sage of Fables right when the, when we found out it was Wizards. I went looking and I, I did some digging into this card. But um, you'll find that the deck has very few ways to actually kill people. All of its creatures are very anemic. Um, and you're like, oh, well, I'm going to just make copies of tons of them and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but you're making copies of like one ones and two twos. Like it still doesn't matter. So Sage of Fables gives you a little bit of extra oomph on your creatures, um, which kind of adds up. It's useful. And being able to draw tons of cards in order to just keep your hand stocked is going to be really useful if you're uh, if you have to play tons of small creatures because that's all that the wizards are and they're all bad otherwise. Yeah, fair enough. All right, so next on the list, we've got Door to Nothingness Foils from Fifth Dawn, moving from $4 to $15. Uh, it's an $11 gain or 275%. Uh, what was your take on why that was moving? Uh, Door to Nothingness is, uh, I think we talked about this before, one of the other ones, but it was the Ramos um, dragon. dragon deck because he makes 10 mana. 
of two of each color. So you just, you know, cast a couple spells, get the counters on them, and then resolve door to nothingness, and you go, boop, you leave the game. Right, because the whole thing with Ramos Dragon Engine is that he's a six casting cost, four, four, with flying, legendary artifact creature dragon. Whenever you cast a spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on Ramos Dragon Engine for each of that spell's colors. Remove five plus one, plus one counters from Ramos and add uh, two of every mana. Uh, color to your mana pool and then you set off your door to nothingness it was uh it was no ice cauldron but you were getting close there yeah it's uh it's got a little bit of text on the card yeah so it looks like the foils from fifth on have jumped uh we talked about the other printings of this before i think last time um the problem with this with this one specifically uh i don't know if you've taken a look at you know the fifth on foils i'm sure you have but a lot of our listeners may not have uh the original mirrored and foils were really bad and i mean really bad uh like you can someone could hand you the card and be like check out my foil duplicate and you're like this is foil and you're looking at it and you can't tell um so i don't it seems like these might be a little tricky to sell uh but i guess maybe you're hoping either the enfranchise players don't care uh, and they just like the idea that it's foil even though that you can't really tell or that new players won't notice I, I think because pictures are so rarely uh, a big part of the game and most people's eBay photos, are, I mean, the, the game of selling magic cards, um, and even on eBay where they are part of that process, um, they're often so bad and sometimes deliberately that you just have to rely on PayPal, have PayPal having your back if the card doesn't show up in the condition that it's claimed. That's not one of the reasons that you could return it. Um, so I, I have a feeling they just slip slip on by. Um, but I do remember that they also uh, curled quite uh, poor, poorly from that set, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, I mean, they curled from all the old sets. But yes, I, probably as well. That happened right. as well. So next on the list, Psionic Blast from Time Spiral. Um, both foils and non-foils making a move. I think this is the foils that move 225 to $11. Um, uh, every edition of Psionic Blast. You had... The time spiral, those are the ones you're looking at there. I think are the, I think that's the foil price. But there's also the um, the collector's edition, and also not collector's edition, the player rewards edition, and even like the normal time spiral one bumped a little bit. Silly. Yeah, this was because uh, Saf over at Goldfish was playing a favorable wins like Blue Skies Flyer deck. Um, on his YouTube channel and got thousands and thousands of hits. And so people got it in their heads that Psionic Blast was an important card. Yeah, this is this is rich. <laughs> I mean, this, uh, <laughs> the he has f- something north of 100,000 views on those matches. So I, I find it amusing that he's kind of the, the least engaged in um, the actual finance side of MGG Finance while still being a part of that you know, loosely part of that community, um, but probably has the biggest impact on spiking unnecessary cards kind of inadvertently. Well, that's the uh, that's the rub, right? The catch yeah. 22 is it's the guys who care the least are the ones who do the most. Yeah, that's funny. So, yeah, that uh, I don't think Sinic Blast is likely to hold this price, at least the, the newer printings. Um, I, I think this is a card that is almost certainly going to show up in Magic 25. Um, I think it's a slam dunk there um, as one of the kind of like old school um, nostal- like semi-nostalgic cards that all of us remember from the mid-late 90s um, um, that 
make perfect sense in that set. So you're going to get new copies and new foil copies, I think, in the spring. And um, I will put the caveat on that comment um, that, you know, alpha beta editions, that's a different story. Everything in those sets is moving. And the things that are like medium too good are are going to hold price forever now. Yeah, yeah. I um, I don't... I don't want anything to do with psionic blast. Uh, maybe the maybe the players' rewards copies will kind of stick. Maybe they won't. I don't know. I'm I'm just staying away. I've got better things to do with my money. And this is such a flavor of the week. Like I can't stress to you, this isn't even flavor of the week. This is somebody told you they heard it was flavor of the week. <laughs> uh, just don't don't waste your time, money, thought process, whatever. Um, Next on our list is Sabo Tavik. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm just going to have to be. Uh, this is a legend from Invasion. Um, started, uh, we're looking at the foil copies this week. They're uh, started at nine, jumped to 45, supposedly. Um, Non-foils haven't really moved at all yet. Uh, there's quite a few of them available out there. This is a card that's a, it's a fat, expensive creature, but what makes her interesting is you can tap destroy target legend. Um, but wasn't she, I, so tap, uh, she, yeah. Okay. So it's tap, destroy target, legendary creature, but the card says tap, destroy target legend. So I suspect that when the planeswalker legendary rule was announced, people went and looked up like legend on card text saw this card went oh she destroys legends and then started buying in on foils because they're like this now taps to destroy planeswalkers not realizing that that's not the case that's a working theory but that's what i suspect at the moment so that totally happened because i bought a foil on that premise and flipped it (laughs) somebody else bought it and neither of us apparently knew that it didn't work (laughs) well so okay (laughs) at least from my Single data point of anecdotal evidence. Well, I'm glad to get uh, instant verification of my hypothesis there. It, it seems reasonable to me. So you're saying that the the Oracle text does not allow her to destroy Planeswalkers? Nope. It says destroy target legendary creature because at the time that this was made, the only legends were legendary creatures. They did not have to specify. I not- th- Well, no, actually, that's not true because you had, um, whatchamacallit? The the lands, right? Like wasn't uh wasn't the one like the original Urborg and stuff like that? Were those le- were those not oh, legendary? Yeah. yeah, yeah, there was legendary. Oh they were lands. So, what an odd well, what an odd wording then. Because and, if there had been no legend at all other than creatures, I can understand why they would print it like this. But in this case they're like, well, it says destroy legend, but I guess people are just going to have to know that we don't mean legendary lands. Like this isn't a stone rain on a stick. This is, this is a strange ruling because it's from August 1st, 2005. I have no idea what was going on at that point that made them make that ruling. So if anybody has that story, feel free to send it in. We'll talk about it next week. I wonder if that was that the original legend rule update that like allowed you to play your legend if they already had theirs in play. Uh, I'm not sure, but now I feel bad that I sold this for like 25 or $30 wow. <laughs> and I bought mean, it for five. You want to talk about greater fool theory. This is <laughs> yeah, that, that really putting that definition <laughs> on the table. <laughs> I'm stupid. They're stupider. Away we go. Yeah, pretty right. much. 
So moving on, uh, Biorhythm, 9th edition foils moved from 350 to 26 That's a $22 gain and change, about 640%. And I'm assuming that your note here is the correct one. People think this is maybe getting banned and unbanned in EDH because occasionally people put up their hand and say, hey, why the hell is this banned in EDH? Yeah, I, I can't fathom what else this could be. Unless the only other thing that I think this could be, and I'm thinking about it now, is... With pseudo Gaia's Cradle in Modern, people think this will be a kill spell. Like, you play elves, you ramp out a couple elves, drop the enchantment, cast Biorhythm on, like, turn three or four with, like, six creatures in play, and your opponent goes to zero or one. Yeah, and you're hoping the control deck doesn't have a counter spell and... <laughs> yeah, I didn't say it was good. I just, that's what I suspected the thinking might be on that one. The other option here is 7, 8th, and ninth Black Border Foils are targeted anyway um, and and are kind of one by one getting picked off at a slower pace than... Slower but similarly consistent pace to what's happening in the reserve list right now. Um, so I think, you know, it could be the confluence of all of those elements. But I think your first guess is still the best one that somebody said, hey, these are cheap. Um, they're 3 or $4. If it gets unbanned at EDH, they go to 50 immediately. Um, it may may see a reprint someday, but maybe never. Um so, yeah, that's fine. Um, I don't have any of these lying around, so let's move along. <laughs> no, we don't need to talk about it because not everyone's have a stake in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. What about Imperiosaur? Uh, Imperiosaur, and I believe Cliff and I even touched on this last week. Oh, we, we mentioned it, but it was not in our, um, our list of cards. There was a great dinosaur creature type update. And it turns out that uh, Imperiosaur all this time was actually a dinosaur, and we didn't know it, even though I think he was, what, a creature beast or something, or a lizard beast? Yeah. Uh, So Imperiosaur is suddenly a dinosaur. People are like, oh, I'm going to buy the foils because people are going to need these for their dinosaur deck. And they're probably right. People will buy them for their dinosaur deck. And it's unfortunate because the card's really bad outside (laughs) outside of Limited, where it's pretty good. But it doesn't really matter. Because people will buy it because there aren't going to be enough dinosaurs and they're going to need something. Yeah. Um, a 5-5 five, five that you can only spend basic mana to play uh, for four mana is not really where the game is at right now. Um, but sometimes people go up off after themed cards when they could be targeting good stuff. And uh, I, I got to tell you, I'm as this podcast um, listener base grows and the pro trader base grows, and more and more pro traders become aware that they can just ping us on Twitter at, and get friendly chat about MGG Finance whenever they want. Um, I have more and more conversations every week with people that have these off-the-wall ideas they want to run by us. And almost every time, my first response is, are you sure that's the best option right now? <laughs> you know, we, we, we've talked a couple of times about like that originality is not what's important. I would happily snag somebody else's pick if it is the better pick on any given week. Um, and run with it because <laughs> tell people your idea is bad and then just go buy them all yourself <laughs> i mean I don't, I don't you know need to pull a bait and switch i'll tell them it's good and go buy them buy them if i mean to, to, for me right now this is all about supply side economics like if the supply is low and demand is peaking relatively then that's a good sign to move in but you have to compare your options. You can go after Imperiosaur and guess and hope that dinosaur decks and EDH are a big enough deal that these foils stick for a while and you can unload however many you picked up. Or you can go buy one of our picks from this week, which we are far more likely to make you money. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say here, James, I don't completely 
hate the guy who went and bought these because he was paying 40 cents a piece, right? Like he was paying nothing. He probably was able to get a huge stock of them because no one in the right mind would have ever bought these in the past. You can grab future site copies where it was originally printed. So it's got a unique border and it's like, why not? Like your, your buy-in is so low and you might, dinosaurs are cool. And if you get enough people who are like, Hey, this is nifty. I want to do this. Like you could might be able to sell them at five or six bucks. So it's like it's we can look at it and go, these are dumb and people shouldn't play these in their decks, but that doesn't mean that people won't. And that's still good enough to make money on them. Yeah, I think I feel the same way about these about the bad reserve list cards, which is not that you shouldn't yes. buy them, but that they are not an optimal ch- choice for your spec. And you shouldn't be super deep. Um, you should be shallow. So like you might want four to six copies of this in foil and try to unload them quick through the hype bubble. Um, but you don't want to be holding 300 copies of this. And the problem is that I don't always want 300 copies of a spec, but I often want 50. And, you know, how else am I going to end up getting screwed by Supreme Verdict being reprinted in Iconic Masters if I don't have 50 foils? Right. <laughs> yeah, it, it's the, that's the, the line you walk in that case, huh? <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. Any, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead top of the list still right we have all this other stuff that exploded this week from the reserve list yeah um, the stuff that isn't worth our time discussing well i'll mention a few few names here the some of the real the stuff that really moved it looks like they've moved in on the portal three kingdoms stuff now too um and of course things from arabian nights antiquities um legends and the dark kind of in that order being targeted consistently beta and alpha cards uh seem to be getting pushed this week some like you know the top Top gainer in theory and non-foils was Orcish Artillery, moving from like $5 to $30 for like a 600% gain. Um, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff from Arabian Nights. City of Brass. I got, my dad, old man gave me a City of Brass Arabian Nights near mint for Christmas. And I was like, thanks for the $100 bill, dad. <laughs> and uh, and now that's like a $225 card. <laughs> so it's an even better gift now. Um, oh, damn, I think I have one of those. <laughs> yeah, and and the funny thing here is that like without being like super participative in this market, like I've I've bought a few things here and there that seem to make a lot make sense, um, especially when the deals were good. Um, you know, still benefiting, and that collection that I got a few weeks ago that was all you know ninety three ninety four stuff. I'm not going to try to sell any of it. Like, why bother? I've got all this other stuff to sell from Europe and what have you that'll keep me busy for a while, and I only have so much time to sell during the week. And I have a feeling if I revisit this stuff in six months, there's going to be a st- bunch of stuff that pops. I mean, just in the time I was away uh, on the surf trip, uh, Power Artifact um, like jumped like 60% or something, and there was two of them in that collection. So I'm glad I didn't post those for sale in a hurry. Uh, yeah, that works out well for you. I mean, it doesn't seem like you ever really go wrong not selling that type of stuff. Like It just kind of creeps up. It's just a question of, like, could I do something more with the money? And the answer tends to be yes, but it doesn't mean, you know, if it's just sitting there in your collection and you weren't really going to do much to flip it after the fact, it doesn't mean that it's a bad idea to hold on to it. I mean, I think if buy lists climb on like some of the stuff that people got in on at two or three, the stuff that we were calling crap reserve list um, that we said was a bad idea. If, if you got in at two or three, you got 10 copies and buy list gets up to six or something. And that stuff is just garbage, like stuff that has no play anywhere and casual or EDH with any demand. I think you can safely move out of that as long as you have another target to move into that is likely to appreciate faster than whatever you were exiting. That's right. That's always the general rule, right? Like that's how you should be making your decisions about exiting specs. So let's move on to talking about some of the uh, hotter things you could be putting your money in this week. Um, we've got a pretty spicy cards to watch, I think. 
Um, why don't you give me your pick first? They usually are. Um, I started this week off with uh, nothing too sexy, but I think pretty reasonable is uh, Sculpting Steel, the masterpiece invention. I have to like pause and think about those words. Um, Sculpting Steel is in about 7,000-ish EDH decks. Uh, it's a three-mana artifact that comes into play as a copy of another artifact. So very high utility across a wide variety of um, deck types. It's only going to be... Of course, as, as EDH grows, so will demand for Sculpting Steel. Um, it's not a like a really niche-specific card like you might see, for instance, for, for a deck like Marisal, which, um, you know, we're unlikely to see cards, her drive, other things in the future. Um, so the invention, the invention right now is... Uh, relatively cheap at around 28 just under $30, which we've seen as a, a pretty reasonable floor for uh, masterpieces so far, like the inventions and the invocations as well. Um, you don't see too many get below that, and a lot of them kind of jump when they get down into that range if they're at all playable. Uh, and there's this has a low, lowish amount of copies too. I think there's roughly 20-something near-mint copies on TCG Player right now. Uh, and for comparison... Like the uh, the gear hulks are in the like forty to eighty range in terms of quantity. So twenty low twenties is actually pretty rare, or I shouldn't say rare, but it's clearly uh, moving moving downwards. That I twenty is sort of my cutoff for like oh somebody could show up and clean this out, right? Like it's yeah. unlikely someone's going to buy thirty five at once, but if it's like sixteen, uh, you might get somebody to pull that trigger. So that's sort of the the yellow zone I would call it. Yeah, it, it's draining, and I can confirm that when I first looked at this, there was 80 to 100 copies, I believe, on TCG, like, early in the winter. Um, I skipped it for the most part. I picked up a few copies around 25 on eBay here and there, just thinking, like, you know, this is an all-purpose, like, open-ended synergy card. It copies any artifact on the battlefield, which is yours or your opponent's. So the more artifact-specific EDH uh, commanders they print, the more demand will be present in the format for this. And EDH in general is on the upswing, so expect anything that's good in EDH. But at, at EDH is like midpoint as opposed to its peak um, to appreciate in the interim. Uh, and I like I like any masterpiece once it drops under 20 or 30 copies, especially if it hasn't been sitting at that level, but is moving into that level after being ignored for a while. Um, yeah. I think I think you're totally right that 30 is like the, it's like 25 to 30 is the floor. You might find some locally or from a like Twitter or Facebook vendor closer to 25. Uh, I think you can stock away 5, 10, 15, 20 copies of this. And it's probably not your slam dunk this year um, because the demand is not quite as high as for things like Masterpiece Soul Ring, but it's probably a slow, steady gainer and seller. You might unload a copy or two a month once it finally spikes for a while and just easily get your money back out and churn it into your other specs. Yep, exactly. Not sexy, not thrilling, but pretty much uh, guaranteed to, to jump in price there. Um, how about your first card for the week? Well, this one's not a card so much as a class of cards that I started targeting this week because I noticed um, on some of the price updates day to day, it looked like people were starting to go after these sets. The people that are hungry for buying out reserve list stuff are starting to spill over. As I said earlier, they're, they've been targeting Portal Three Kingdoms, which is a relatively low volume set. And one of the other thing, sets that has been you know widely ignored by people for quite some time is the Collector's Edition and International Collector's Edition. Um, which are basically uh, reprintings of beta with gold border backs and square corners that were released as a collector's set, or not a booster box. It came out in 
uh, a collector set that had one of every card in the set. So one of every card in beta and the front, the fronts are beta cards. Like if you put them in a sleeve um, and throw them into your EDH deck, then um, uh, according to the poll I ran on Twitter this week, where I asked people if um, their play groups would allow, um, and I included proxies, CEICE and gold border cards from the world championship decks that were released in the mid late nineties. Um, and 65% plus of people said that their playgroups would allow. And a lot of the no's, I think, were more related to proxies um, based on the anecdotal feedback that uh, was attached to the, the survey. Um, that leads me to believe that maybe 70 to 75% of playgroups would allow you to play an ICE or a CE, which means that for at current pricing, under $200, you could have a beta-looking dual land in your EDH deck. And, you know... Does anybody have goals that are higher than that for EDH, given that you can't play power? <laughs> no, probably not. This is really interesting. And I think that um, this CE stuff really comes with a, uh, a sort of quiet feature, which is that, um, you know, wizards might make these legal at some point. Because, you know, originally the thought was, oh, they have a different back, they have a different border type of thing. So we, you know, they can't be legal. But once flip cards came out, that kind of threw all that to the wayside, right? Like that wasn't valid anymore. So I'm not saying they're going to, but like you also have that kind of baked kind of in, is in the value. I shouldn't say it's in the value of the card. It can be part of the value of the card, but it's not necessarily factored into the price at the moment. So it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, this is already a good buy um, because they're kind of on their way up and they look good and no one at your table is going to give you a hard time about playing with them. And you also have the like outside hip shot chance of them saying, okay, these are all legal and suddenly your cards are worth way more money than you, than you paid for them. I mean, the key point here is that there's a format that is ascendant EDH that is, doesn't care whether something is tournament legal. And that's the key that if there was no format that, to drive that kind of potential demand, um, then I think it would be much less interesting. But we're headed into a zone where there was already very low supply of these things because get this, like these were released in December of, the wiki page says 1993, but I think it might've been 1994 um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but regardless, in the first like two years of Magic. And there was 9,000 sets printed for the US and Canada. That was the CE, so collector's edition. And another 5,000 were printed for international release, which is referred to as ICE, as an international collector's edition. So that is extremely low printings, right? Like less than 15,000 total sets. And it's just one of each, right? Like it just, wasn't, we're not talking play sets. And, and how many have been damaged? Because these are square, bo- square, border, uh, square cornered. So, and the corners are super easy to dent. So how many Nearman copies are left? Like virtually none. And if you start poking around, there are a bunch of these cards that have popped lately from like 20 to 40, 40 to 60, 10 to 30. And something that's just popped usually doesn't catch my attention. But one of the things I've noticed about, you know, when people were targeting, first started targeting these low value reserve list cards was if I went and looked at some of the better cards, like, you know, good dual lands, blue dual lands, they weren't really moving. Um, like weren't popping as hard as fast. We've seen Underground Sea do some fluc- big fluctuations here and there in the last couple of years. We've seen Volcanic do the same. Um, you know, Tropical um, and Tundra have have made some gains as well, but they haven't shown the, the kind of yaw in price that we've seen on the lower value stuff. And so 
when I started looking at collector's edition, what I focused in on was that Underground Sea, for instance, could be had at about 150 and I picked up a bunch of copies at that price. And it didn't take long for for you know the three or four purchases I made of those to drain you know you know a significant portion of the U.S. market. There just weren't that many copies lying around amongst vendors at all. And so the reason I bring these up is I think if you go look at the blue CEICE copies at your local LGS, if they happen to have any in stock, they are probably still priced more or less the same as they've been for a while. They probably don't haven't moved them very fast because nobody that's playing Legacy or Vintage is going to play them. So. And a lot of EDH players probably do not even know this set exists yet. But if you show one of these off in an EDH group and they're finding them, it's going to raise some eyebrows and people are going to, the guy at the table that likes to like trick out his deck is going to start thinking about it because it looks like a beta duel. Um, and in a sleeve, then there, no one's really going to know the difference. So I would poke around, see what you can find, compare it to the remainder prices that are left for the the stuff that you can find kicking around on some of the bigger vendors on on uh, TCG and eBay. But there's really not much of there, and I think it's good, and I think it's going to show 50 percent gains over the next year or so. You know, it's funny that you talk about the condition of them because I have a uh, a Black Lotus CE oh, nice. um, that I well. Well, hold on <laughs> that I paid like, I don't know, I think it was like $150 or something like that. So I, I, I haven't looked at the price of them. And since I bought it, I'm sure it's more than that now. But whoever I got it from had rounded the corners, like just taking a scissor and rounded the corners. And I wouldn't be in order to make it look more like an alpha, I assume. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of them had well, that well, done. This- because the straight corner was a nightmare to keep in good condition, especially when, you know, there wasn't the, the, the habit of keeping your cards protected in the way that there is now. And you, why, you know, why not? Oh, I can just cut these corners that are going to get damaged off anyways to make them look like the original real card. Uh, since the only thing that's different is a corner. Well, this is the thing. If you get a professional cornering machine, then you can really get there. Like you can get pretty close to getting that cut correct. And then nobody's even going to question it in your play group. And, and somebody pointed out on Twitter, like, oh yeah, but people just use them to like, to like fake beta or fake alpha. And I'm like, fantastic. You're telling me there's a collectible (laughs) product that only has 10,000 copies and a bunch of them were damaged. Now, now near mint copies are worth even more because even if if these never take off in EDH, and I I don't think the awareness level is high, um, then you still have the collectors that care about this set. And still want to have a binder full of, you know, power or whatever, but aren't don't have fifty thousand to get. I mean, it says collector's edition. How could a collector not buy it? <laughs> you know, and, and <laughs> instead of putting, you know, thirty thousand aside to put a nine pay, a nine uh, slot binder page full of power together, you can spend like a thousand dollars. So, by the way, your Lotus is four eighty according to MTG stocks. Well, it would be sure. four minutes. but even if it's not, you're it probably at least up double or triple, right? Yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, I, you know, frankly, I would be a little concerned about buying them online. And if it says near mint, like, "Mm, what does near mint mean on this card? Like, that's almost something that I would only want to buy in store or at a GP floor because that's that as a condition that's going to be much tougher uh, than you would see. Yeah, I agree. Um, Because I think a lot of them uh, have taken damage over the years. The but instead of holding off, usually what I do if I'm buying on eBay, for instance, is I just go ahead and buy it. And if there's a problem, 
um, they are highly motivated to resolve the issue for you because if they don't resolve it for you, then PayPal will. So I just usually send people a, hey, I want 20 or 25% off um, you know, for condition recognition. And I almost always get it. And uh, somebody did the same thing to me this week. I had two ancient uh, Stirrings foils that I bought from Europe a few months back. And I was certain they were near mint. I shipped them off. The guy said they had scratches on them. There's no point in even having that argument at that point. Um, so I just went ahead and gave them the same discount. I think it's a fairly reliable tactic. Um, and as long as you're being honest about it, there's no reason not to go for it. Sure. Doesn't seem unreasonable. So, I mean, you can get underground C somewhere in the 150, 160 range, I think, if you can manage to find them. And all the rest of the blue duels are like under $100 or, or under 120 um, I see TROPS listed on MGG stocks in and around 100. Bayou's are like less than 80. Um, all of this stuff just seems like a slam dunk to me. The, 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 it's a niche, niche card to be holding. But there's, you know, what's more reserveless than reserveless? The stuff that was printed in like 10,000 and then everybody cut them up. <laughs> yeah that is what they did with exactly. them too <laughs> so there there just aren't that many around and and there's like one seal unsealed set or something on ebay i checked into europe they don't like for instance on, on the topic of the underground sea um between ce and ice they only had a small handful available and and japan had basically none because there was no distribution there so you know but if globally there's less than 12 copies that's what i call a spec <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would say so. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, that was a good one. Uh, my second pick of the week is going to be uh, Butcher of Malakir. This one's a little more interesting, I think. Butcher of Malakir Foils. Butcher of Malakir is the uh, Grave Pact on a Stick Vampire. There are about 800 non-foil printings, but still only one foil printing from uh, World Wake. Just got reprinted in the Vampire Zekum Commander 17, which, uh, to my surprise, has been the second best-selling deck, tribal commander deck. Um, you can still grab foils of this for $2 on TCG Player right now, and it is 10.30 Eastern, and I bet you by 8 a.m. Eastern you will not be able to find them for $2 once it's out there. Um, but, I mean, this is a like must-play vampire in your new vampire deck. There's one foil copy available, uh, and I think that it's... A slam dunk at two dollars yeah and wherever you know look at the mgg price vendors check your back pocket vendors that we don't carry um check your ebays poke around europe if you if you've got your contacts set up over there maybe took a take a look at the japan sites etc um because yeah the card makes the deck there's hardly any foils left <laughs> easy breezy super peasy go for it beautiful yeah, cover go girl. for it uh, okay, well, you looks like you got two more lined up. We did this out of order. What else have you got mm. for us here? You want the really juicy one or the juicy one? Uh, I'm a little... Uh, I'm actually not really thirsty. Do you have anything that's not juicy? <laughs> you guys want a dry spec, like something that's going to make you 10 cents a copy? I think that... Well, I feel like the dry spec was that sculpting steel. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Sword of the Animist Foils. This is this card, everybody out there guess. Just think a number in your head. How many EDH.Rect decks are there for sword of the animist and you're all wrong it's fourteen thousand. that is a ton of decks running this card it's only got a single printing and foil there are very few foils left i started buying in around nine or ten dollars bought some more at 12 there are still some copies out there at 15 this is a future 20 to 30 dollar card um 
it's super useful in EDH and hardly anybody talks about it. If if it's been somebody else's pick at some point on some other cast, I apologize. I'm sure you your wisdom uh, was valuable when you mentioned it as well. But the card is just rock solid in EDH and there's zero reason not to be going after the original foils right now. I was uh, pretty surprised that it was 14,000. I mean, I knew it was going to be reasonable, but I did not think it was that reasonable. That's a really good number. Uh, I feel a little bad because I remember when this came out, I was like, hey, this card looks really good. Like I had the thought that it was a good card, but still didn't do much about it. Um, yeah, I mean, 10 buck foil for 14,000 EDH decks, and it's a very much a, uh, a themed card. It's uh, Nisa's Sword. Um, from Magic Origin, so it's not like you, they're just going to pop that up anywhere. You would have to see it in um, ancillary product, uh, most likely, um, to get this printed again, like a commander deck type of thing. Uh, but again, no foils there. So, uh, sure, 10 bucks. it sounds good to me. You know what EDH decks like to do? They like to ramp. This is a uh, an equipment for two, equip for two. Uh, equipped creature gets plus one, plus one, which is not the important part. The important part is that when you attack, not deal damage just attacking you search your library for a basic land card put it on the battlefield tap so if you're running some kind of tokens deck where you can you can afford to just throw a body into the red zone and don't really care what happens to it that's just a land every time you do that for two mana so you're basically getting a repeatable rampant growth effect on the board that is good but not so good that people are going to waste their kill spell on it yeah it's really good um basically in any deck that isn't green because the green decks have trouble generating, non-green decks have trouble keeping up with the green deck, so this gives them another tool to do yeah, that. Yeah, you see it show up in like Omnath, Alicia, Sram, Kemba. Like it's just a whole bunch of like unrelated decks, right? Um, you know, decks yeah. decks that can reliably attack. I don't actually, don't actually see it in many of the token focus decks, which I think seems odd. Um, I would think that token decks would definitely be wanting to run this. But uh, the the point is, original foils, fourteen thousand decks. Um, you can get it, say, somewhere between $10 and $15, and I think it's going to make you $10, $15 a copy. So seems like a good one. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to take a look after this cast. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on. Oh, you had one more. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish this Play off. Play another little game. What, what's the best removal spell printed in the last five years? Uh, reprinted or new? Uh, new. I feel like the obvious answer is here is Fatal Push, but I don't want to tell you that because it's too easy. <laughs> okay, and it's an FNM promo, right? But take a look at how many FNM promos are left on TCG Player. Uh, not many, I'm assuming. Uh, I'm seeing less than 20 results. It's, uh, I would consider that not right. many. And I'm assuming that this is just ramping up, like this just got released at FNMs and it's going to be around for a little while. Um, but from what I heard, people like attendance was spiking with people trying to get this card and everybody wants, you don't want one copy of this. You want four copies of this because the decks that run it run four copies often. Um, and it's good in so many formats and it's just one of the sweeter LGS promos in recent memory. So they're going to be coveted. You know, what's even sweeter than the English FNM promo. How about the Russian FNM promo from a country that has many human beings living in it, but very few LGSs on record? How many FNM Russian foil fatal pushes do you think are out there? 
uh, on TCG because I'm going to go with zero. Sure, but just out there, like how many were even printed? Let's say that there's 100 LGSs in Russia, and I think that's wrong. I think it's like significantly less than that. Even if it's 300 LGSs and they got what? Like 100 copies each? So maybe there's 30,000 copies. And this is like giving generous, generous numbers here. I suspect that there are less than 5,000 foil Russian uh, FNM uh, fatal pushes. There are very few left on eBay. I bought like six or something this morning um, at $30 a piece. $30 for Russian foil FNM promo fatal push that will never be reprinted in the same way with the same art. Like that just seems like slam, 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 slam dunk. Like I, th- that's got to be a future $200 card in my estimation. I mean, that is certainly going to be a card that is, uh, I probably, I would say difficult to get rid of, um, simply because the market for people who will pay that is going to be vanishingly small, but at the same time, uh, somebody will. Um, so I'm sure that, you know, if you've got a couple floating around a play set, um, you know, you could offload a play set for, if you sell the one guy for 750 bucks, it's a pretty good little profit. And and often I don't even wait you know, that deep into the rotation, right? Like you, you want into the curve, you, you want to have a greed policy in place. You want to have some max level of profit by which you say, okay, this is the curve is going to level off from here. And I've got something else on the horizon that might have a steeper curve. So let's go ahead, get out and get back into something more exciting. I mean, the, the last card that I sold on eBay this afternoon was, Uh, I noticed, I think it was a patron wizard foil, if I'm not mistaken. And I picked that up locally for like five bucks when, when we found out that wizards were in commander and somebody just paid me $54 for that card. If I can get $54 for a patron wizard foil, then surely I can get more than 30 for a Russian foil FNM fatal push down the road. I want to know what store had foil uh, patron wizards for $5 because that card was not $5 before the announcement. I, it's I, not fair. <laughs> uh, this is a busy magic city. Uh, m- most of the stores here are totally on the ball, but their inventories are so large that they can't possibly reprice everything. And very few of the big stores here are checking prices online. They all have uh, full-time employees whose job it is to price cards. And that is, the greatest place to go hunting because those guys can never keep up with trends. Only there were a multitude of websites that provide that information on a daily basis. Yeah, but the thing is like, what are you going to do? You're going to run to the 250 binders you have on the shelf in these stores, these big ones in town, and you're going to hand price all those cards again. Like you can do that maybe once a week, Right. But you can't you can't be on that every morning at 10 a.m. and be repriced by 2 p.m. It just doesn't work that way. They they re, they, they replace well, the showcase for the like really hot stuff. And they're pretty timely on that. But some of these weird EDH foils, you know, a lot of these stores still don't really respect EDH. I've seen this over and over again. I at Fan Expo, I went to a vendor who had a ton of stuff for me that like had spiked over the last few months that hadn't been updated in his old binders. All the stuff he had in his like forward case, totally on point with the prices. But all that stuff he had, like, sitting at the back of the booth, that's the stuff I want to look at. I want to look at the binders with dust on them that you haven't looked at in a while. Because that means that somebody forgot to price something. Well, sure, I agree with that. I don't know. I don't... I, I am less keen to give you uh, stores a break for that type of pricing type of thing. Like, I'm not, you know, it's good for me. I'm not, like, yelling at them about it. But it's like, 
you know, you don't need to go change the price of your whatever, your Sabo Sabic non-foils from 75 cents to $3, right? Like just let people come buy them. But, you know, if you see that foil patron wizards have gone from $7 to 40, like that might be worth taking a couple minutes to go see if you have. The other thing is that like some of the employees at these stores know exactly who I am, um, either because they've seen me around the scene for ages, just in a magic capacity, or they happen to listen to the podcast or whatever, because their job is to price magic cards. Um, but I spent a lot of money. Like I, I put a lot of money into these stores. And so, the, you know, if I'm buying six or $700 of cards at a time, they, you know, even though they know some of those recently spiked and they should have repriced them, like they're not dumb. They, when they look through the pile on the way to the cash register, they know what's there, but they'll go ahead and give me a 10 or 15% discount anyway. Cause it's a volume purchase. Like that, that's a big chunk of change to drop into the cash register. I don't know. Even a busy LGS. Well, Someday we can all hope to be as lucky as you are. I, I really just think it's about like the size of your urban center and the density of ma- the magic population, right? Like if you're, I, one of the things I've, I've noticed when I'm on vacations in the U S is if I'm in a really small community and they only have like, like a single magic store, that store often leans on somebody else's pricing. Like they, they just don't have an employee that can keep up with pricing. So they don't even bother. They just say we're SEG. Like the store in Ashtabula, Ohio, yeah. where my dad lives, just uses this CG. He's got a really great case. He's got really good inventory. And in fact, he's very busy for Pokemon tournaments. They have like regularly, regularly stream tournaments with like hundreds of people um, for Pokemon. Uh, and people come from like three states away to play there. But on the magic scene, they're a little more modest. Um, their showcase is good, but again, no prices. So I, I, I don't buy anything there because I know it's just going to be SEG. And you know, yeah. that, that SEG price is very rarely what I want to be spending. So, you know, they don't get my business. But somewhere else that's got variable pricing or dynamic pricing or is like correct on some things and not others, that's a store I'm going to walk into repeatedly and drop money. Well, yeah, you and I both, if I can find stores that do that, uh, I, I have had experiences with local stores where they have prices on the cards in the case and, uh, I walk in and ask for, I'm like, oh, I'll take those cards. And then they're like, oh, but we're going to look up the prices before we sell them to you. Just, 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 oh, God, I hate that. I think I wrote an article how that made me so angry, how scummy that was. There was a store in town here that like, I I bought a bunch of foils that were like, hadn't been repriced in forever. And they said, the next time I went in, they said, oh, our foils don't have pricing anymore. I said, "Eh, I guess I just ruined that for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently... They only did it because it was me like and I I don't know, but I don't think they do it to everybody. It was like, oh, Travis is asking and he's got he's doing this with surgical precision. So check all those prices. And I was like, okay, I'm never buying a magic card here again. Uh, The store owner also told me that I was uh, because I was doing that, that I was a shark (laughs) and it was tantamount to theft. (laughs) That's hilarious. I mean, if I'm responsible for fixing the price at a retailer are they also responsible for telling me that i can buy the same product down the road for five dollars less oh yeah it is complete have your cake and eat it too uh i that that business practice is just so scummy this is also the same place that did a gofundme to build um a set of new stairs in the building um, cause they, I think, I don't remember if it was like they built the second, they bought the second level of the building or something or other, but they had to raise money to put in a new staircase and they did like a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe and like you didn't get anything for it. It was just <laughs> players were donating money to a store to improve the infrastructure, but it, to, it, this isn't like your local rec center or a charity organization. This is a business. Ugh. 
just drives me nuts. And don't even get me started on that goddamn Veronica Mars Kickstarter. You let, <laughs> oh, it makes my blood boil. Oh, Buffalo. Buffalo sounds so, so amazing. Well, the Veronica Mars thing was, that was a, a bigger deal, not yeah. Buffalo. It was just. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about Magic Arena because I am sure, as I'm sure as our listeners are as well, that you have thoughts and comments on this. Wow. Magic Arena. Um, Let's start with a positive. That interface looks like it has a lot of potential. Done. (laughs) Uh, And if I was a shill from some other cast, that's probably where I would stop. Uh, But let's talk about it honestly. So the bottom line is that The digital properties for Magic for a long time have been very disappointing. We have like the high point of uh, Magic on Microprose, the the, um, revered Chandelier um, software that all of us that played it loved and adored and played for hours and hours and hours that we've been trying. That was good. You didn't like it at the time? I didn't play it. It was fucking awesome at the time. Like... For like a late 90s piece of software, yeah, it was, it was so fun. Um, and okay. there's people that still install that thing and play it all the way through today. Um, Duels of the Planeswalkers, because it was outsourced, um, was a surprise hit that onboarded a ton of Magic players um, during the peak on onboarding process that happened like at, in and around leading up to Return to Ravnica. And since then, we've had slower, much slower growth in the player base. So part of what's going on with MTG Arena is that it's a reaction to Hearthstone. They're trying to learn the lessons of a far superior digital company, Activision (laughs) Blizzard, and try to adapt some of those lessons to the new realities of the digital world. Part of it... I'm sorry. I'm not laughing because you're wrong. It's just you're like, it's a reaction to Hearthstone. It's like, it is Hearthstone. I mean... (laughs) like. You just copied so many of the visual elements. I mean, it wasn't like you just, oh, the only way to make a digital TCG is this exact way. And it just turns out that we all have to do it that way. It's like, no, they just ripped off all of these ideas. And it's like, that's, you know, that's fine. You know, don't don't reinvent the wheel if they already did it well. But it's just funny that it's just like so Yeah, similar. I mean, the game board is super similar to the way that Hearthstone boards are, are designed, like top down, like 3D perspective. Um, stuff and with all these like little doodads you can fool around with the but in all fairness hearthstone was ripped off magic first i mean hearthstone was blizzard going here's what tcgs have been to date and their primary template was magic and what are the problems with that genre that prevent it from being really mainstream how do we solve those and they did I mean, they, they figured out that if you were willing to take a step back from what Magic players in particular expected of a product and ask, what does the market want from a TCG? That's how you get to Hearthstone. You get to something that's easier to learn, that has an economy with less restrictions, that doesn't run afoul of gambling laws, that um, has doesn't need a secondary marketplace, doesn't need vendors or bots. I mean, all of these things are upgrades and improvements. And it makes sense that now that they're you know, finally putting some resources towards their digital products, that you know how they're approaching Arena is then saying, okay, well, thanks for borrowing a, a bunch of stuff from us. And and let's be honest, there are tons of cards in Hearthstone that are direct, like and and you know the way that co- like the core part portions of combat, a lot of the core um, keywords were taken lifted right from Magic. So for Magic to lift back is just you know fair is fair. 
Well, uh, I'm sorry. I just chime in here that you're completely correct. And I don't have a problem with what they did. And I guess like Hearthstone lifting mechanics and ideas and like functional concepts, I guess, maybe was more expected. Um, I don't know. But it's just funny because Wizards took the aesthetic, right? They stole the visual appearance. So at the very least, it's very striking immediately. Like you immediately see how similar it is to Hearthstone. It's not that they shouldn't do it or they can't do it. It's just, I don't know. It is something that I feel like I'm going to keep coming back to. Like, man, you guys didn't even try to come up with something different. Here's the thing. Everybody has to be aware. Hasbro is an old school retail manufacturing company. We've been through this over multiple times. They are not a digital DNA company. doesn't matter who they bring in from other digital companies to join the team. The core of the company is not digital. If you go to the board of directors, they are not digital focused. When they've tried to go out and do uh, movie properties, when they've tried to develop their TV networks, when they've tried to uh, develop HasbroToyShop.com, a lot of these projects have been outsourced. They have not gone well. They are not managed well. Um, it's just not in the DNA of the company. It's actually amazing that Hasbro is you know, still as uh, important as they are, given that those, those failures have been in abundance. Um, and a large part of that is due to the fact that they hold, and people that were just at Hascon will have just realized this, if they were didn't hadn't already, you know, they hold a lot of key licenses. Like they make they manufacture Star Wars toys, which is like a, a big portion of Disney's future. Um, they manufacture uh, Marvel toys, which is also a big part of Disney's future. <laughs> and they they have the Transformers license, which is one of the biggest box office success stories of all time globally, even though the movies have been largely garbage. Um, and, you know, these are cr- multi-generational brands. They have massive value in the billions. Like Magic is just is, is a small is basically on par with Play-Doh in the, the total Hasbro portfolio. And it's interesting because Magic players often forget this, that, you know, this is, you know, the future of Hasbro is not dependent on Magic. Magic is like, whatever, what one or two or three percent of their their annual sales. It's it's not even close to being their most important brand. So all of that being taken into consideration, let's also touch on the fact that MT, you know, Magic Online has been this colossal disappointment for going on a decade, maybe even more. Uh, Saffron Olive wrote a really great article, I think a year or two ago, where he basically detailed the history of Magic Online and how many times players were promised things that got pushed off six months, 12 months, two years, three years. There, um, People that are deep into leagues right now have probably already lost track of the fact that leagues were promised for literally almost a decade. And it took them that long to pull that functionality together in a world where, you know, yeah, games are in beta for a long time, but, you know, any company with a budget will iterate and get money-making ventures out the door so that they can test them and and, and gauge the market and, and figure out where the resources should be pushed. So Magic Online is a colossal failure. I think what people were hoping for, for from Arena was something to... Um, you know, advance the cause. And in many ways, I think they're going to get that. This is going to be a more polished product because it borrows concepts from a more polished product. And because they got to start with a, a new gaming engine, they're saying that their internal logic in the game is that much better. Um, you know, there was cute little animations and stuff. And what formats did they say they were starting with? It was just standard, think, right? Did they even give us I, limited? I, they probably I can think have it was limited. standard and sealed, if I'm not mistaken, and they're working on draft. Um, but let's, but let's, huh. just, let's just give them 
that within you know six to twelve months, it's going to include. <laughs> it, it could include with, with in, within what we would expect to be six to twelve. Months. I'm hoping it's a totally different team, and it, it should. It's almost certainly a totally different team of programmers. In which case, it really they really could end up with a, a new culture on that team, a new you know schedule. They've got a modern game engine, so I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that within a year, you can play standard draft and play sealed on magic arena so what is the financial impact of this um well the primary impact is that it underscores that magic arena is the new core digital product in fact in a press release that they sent to the lgs's this week that evan irwin posted on twitter today it mentioned how there were going to be codes handed out for arena to people that go to the Ixalan pre-releases in their LGS. So they're at least connecting those dots pro- appropriately. But one of the, the keywords that I picked up on in that release that a lot of other people would have glossed over is that they called it their flagship digital product. So if it's the flagship, not the feeder funnel back to Magic Online, but the flagship, that means that people may graduate out of it into Magic Online if they get really committed. But that's going to be some small portion of their total population. What is what you should get out of that if you have a, a you know a, a lot of money uh, invested in your Magic Online collection is I would think very seriously about starting to divest that portfolio. Not because money is not going to continue to be made inside Magic Online through the buying the you know the fluctuations of usage, but that over the next one two three years. The game plan, whether they're willing to admit it or not, is clearly to onboard as many people onto Magic Arena as possible. And the better they do in that process, the more resources that will be devoted to it and the less motivation they will have to keep to devote new resources to a new version of the Magic Online platform. And in fact, if Arena does well enough, they will absorb the rest of the best parts of Magic Online that they are not already supporting on Arena. So for instance, Modern and EDH would probably be the next two formats to be adopted and have cards distributed for. Um, but they have very little um, reason to introduce the original like economics where you can actually buy and sell Magic cards, where you can trade them amongst players, where there are... Aaron, Aaron already said there's no exactly. trading. So... Uh, um, if there's no vendors, there's no bots, there's no, you know, tra- you can't pass cards back and forth between players. It means that the acquiring of cards is going to happen in the same way as in Hearthstone and other games like it, where you can grind continuously to get small packages of cards here and there that are basically you getting paid to play the game. Or you can purchase like coins or whatever and use those coins to buy packs. And that means, and the reason that it's worth it for Wizards to pursue that is that without the vendors and the players controlling some portion of the secondary economy, all of the economic um, benefit goes to Wizards, which is a tremendous difference. And one of the ways that they balance off the fact that inside Magic Arena type models, that ARPU, the average revenue per user, will actually be much lower than in Magic Online. Because like a Magic Online draft is $10 a draft, right? it might be less than that inside Arena. And so like their revenue per user per hour will be lower in a Hearthstone-style model. One of the ways you counter that is that the entire economy belongs to them. So if you add up the pieces here and read between the lines, they have very little motivation to encourage legacy and vintage play inside Arena anytime soon. They have very little motivation to give any 
to to alter the path of the economy as it's likely to be laid out. And you're going to get to the point where all the major formats are on both platforms, but the user experience is tremendously better on Arena because they're investing much more into it and trying to advance that cause. And I think what they're going for here, and this is what we said like 18 months ago when we first started talking about this, is that they don't ever have to kill Magic Online. It kills itself. Because the users start to read the writing on the wall, they start to sell out of their collections, the bots start, you know, stop making money, and as the the user base drains out of Magic Online and slowly transitions voluntarily over to Arena, they eventually get to the point where they just say, "Hey, you know, five, three to five years from now, we're going to shut that down. It was a good run. Thanks for coming out." And those anybody who's got collections left inside that system is just going to see them collapse to dust. I, you know, I do wonder if, um, if Wizards is going to try, or I shouldn't say try, I, I do wonder if Wizards wants to end Magic Online, um, to end Moto. It doesn't seem like they necessarily would, because you still can make a ton of money on the players who are hanging around, and the upkeep costs of, like, maintaining it don't seem that high. Um, play, and, you know, there are going to be, you can still continue to make money on the people who want to play Legacy um, and Vintage Online. Uh, which arena is not really going to be set up for um, if anything, because of that rules engine, you know, keep in mind that starting at Ixalan forward means they get to cut out stuff like humility and ice cauldron and all that crap, which technically wizards needs to keep, you know, have available to use in moto, even though nobody would ever play those, like they're on the hook to make sure that they work. Um, you know, you don't have that problem in arena, which means they never bring it. They never bring that stuff forward. So Moto remains the place where you get to play those cards. So I can kind of see Moto living as sort of the like, I can quote unquote legacy system, uh, where you can still have those experiences, and they're just happy to let it run. And if you want to pay a bazillion dollars to draft or whatever on that, you can. Um, it's it, just most players aren't going. It's to not an all or nothing scenario. It's going to be a slow downward transition curve that hits some inflection point and then accelerates so you're going to it, it's not that they're going to kill it or deliberately say that they're not going to keep supporting it or stop giving releasing sets for it or whatever in the immediate future first of all they don't know that arena is going to work so empty magic online is the fallback position right magic online makes a lot of money like tens of millions of dollars um in a given year but it doesn't make hundreds of millions that's the goal with arena they want to make like double, triple, five times, ten times what they're making with Magic Online by by uh, attracting a brand new audience. In effect, they're looking to siphon off some of the giant player base that is playing Hearthstone that is dissatisfied with Hearthstone because that hasn't been a perfectly managed game either and maybe is looking for a superior tactical game because Magic is the superior tactical game versus Hearthstone no matter what people say. Um, it, it because of the fact that it is a more complex rules engine and has a deeper card pool. Um, now, MGG Arena doesn't start with that deep card pool, but it still enjoys the benefits of the, the complexity of the game, which will be attr- attractive to tacticians. And if they can make the game fun to play, easy to learn, and, and attract some portion of that population, they want to siphon off 2% or 3% of, of Hearthstone's player base, that would be a massive success for them. They don't need to siphon off 78% of Hearthstone's business and go directly head-to-head. They're never going to be able to pull that off. They are not even close to the brand cachet that Activation Blizzard have in the gaming community, and they never will. 
So it's not about, you know, trying to be the number one uh, digital TCG. It's about trying to be the number three, four, five, six, and getting enough market share to justify the budget that they're putting into it. But here's the thing. People have to track how that's going. The better it goes, the, the less I want to be associated with Magic Online. Because the better it goes, the more resources get devoted to MDGO, I mean to Magic Arena, and the more uh, functionality that gets added to Arena because it's doing well and they can continue to reinvest, the less uh, competitive advantage Magic Online will have and it will be a cannibalistic situation where the new software is pulling users away from the old software while it's also pulling in new users and that whole community gets more vibrant it's more supported it's more fo- it it's it, it's just got more of wizard's attention and magic online will sputter out slowly and then extinguish and it's not 6 months from now or 12 months from now they have to be successful with arena for magic online to truly die but if they're not successful with arena the feedback that the executives at hasbro get is that they still haven't figured out digital and if they and if arena's not the solution they're not going to be convinced Magic Online was because the reason they did Arena was because they didn't think the Magic Online model was was the correct one. If they thought Magic Online just needed more money, then the money that went into Arena would have gone into Magic Online and it would have been just a new platform for Magic Online, right? Worth would still have his job. So there's a reason that they didn't invest in a new Magic Online before they did Arena. Because they don't believe that the model of Magic Online is the correct model for, to be addressing this marketplace. And that is the surest sign that you should not have a lot of money in Magic Online. And I am I feel totally vindicated based on everything I've heard so far in having exited on ten thousand dollars worth of assets on that on that system and pushed them into our trading in Europe. Nothing it's one of my best decisions of the year. There's there's no way I will ever change my mind on it. I'm convinced that whether they do really well with Arena. Um, and 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 Magic Online collapses in that manner, or they do poorly with Arena, and Wizards rethinks whether they should be in digital at all, um, or decides to just make like leave it as is and and, and slowly put push some minor league resources towards Magic Online. Neither of those scenarios are the scenarios that will make Magic Online players super happy and justify having a bunch of assets tied up there. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, no digital presence. It's like hard to Crazy. conceptualize. <laughs> well, you know, I think you're I think you're spot on with virtually everything. The only place that I would I guess nitpick is I agree that they're not going to try and get rid of Moto. They will let it go on its own. I guess my thought is they have very little reason to actually pull the plug like to completely turn it off. You might as well let it sit there so that people can go play legacy and vintage online and they don't have to deal with the rules, moving the rules for those old cards into arena. And you can still sell people the same card on two platforms because the maintenance costs for keeping moto up and running years down the road, even after arena has become very popular is very minimal compared to what you might be able to drag out of people. So I mean, eventually they'd shut it down, right? Like EverQuest didn't last forever either, but it does seem like a, even if it, Moto would become what paper vintage is. Here's the thing. I'm not in the gaming software industry, but I am in the software and web agency space. And, you know, I've been managing programmers for 20 years. And this is what I'll tell you about 
the cost of Magic Online. They're not going to get less. They're going to get greater. The reason for that is that it's programmed in old styles that they're not updating. And that means that as time goes on, there are less and fewer and fewer programmers that could be hired out of the marketplace to do the work that needs doing to keep each new set getting put into place, right? So it actually gets more expensive over time because they're using legacies, legacy systems. And that is a actually a huge determining factor in how they choose to reinvest. Now, at some point, if Magic Arena is doing extremely well, they may, they may say... Um, upgrade arena to include all the magic online stuff and then offer some kind of amnesty program or transition program where maybe they give people a shit ton of like free packs inside arena to give up their collections in magic online depending on what the numbers say they have to do like they're going to be doing like some combination of marketing surveys and focus groups and they're going to be looking at the data from arena and the data data from mggo and they're going to be trying to figure out the matrix of how do we piss the least people off and get them to come play the new platform while spending the least amount of money and so there is a there's a future where you know your magic online collection um gets translated roughly at some reasonable exchange rate into the new platform but I wouldn't hold your breath, right? And do you really want to take on that risk? Um, you know, here's my opinion about Magic Online moving forward. Play whatever format you love, but dilute your 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 collection down to whatever decks you play frequently. If you want to have a standard deck that's going to cost a few hundred tickets, don't worry about that. That's cool. Like, you can spend $300 and play a season of, of Magic Online, and if they shut it down after that season, who cares? Like, you got your money's worth. But... If you're a guy like my dad, who's been like drafting for years, and yeah, he cashes in a lot of sets, but he, his collection is still like tens of thousands of cards. I'm going to be telling, giving him advice this week to go ahead and dump those to bots like pretty much immediately. There's no reason to be holding giant online magic collections. They're just not safe. Well, I completely agree with that. And that's probably the most important thing our listeners can come away with is re- recognizing that uh your money there is not safe don't think that it's safe and if arena is not the bullet in the chamber that's going to take this out uh it will be the next product in line so um but i have to imagine at this point anyone with a large amount of money left in magic online knows that they are on a sinking ship and is okay with it but that is a uh, a lengthy episode for us tonight. So let's uh, let's bring this to a close, James. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles uh, on MTGPrice.com. Okay, and I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter, Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday for MTGPrice.com. I do the Cartel Risk Rats webcast. Uh, you can check out Scry.Land, The Fine Magic. I think that's most of them. <laughs> also like to remind our listeners to check out the mdgprice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MDG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, that uh, wraps up our 85th episode. I thought it was another good one, James. A lot of interesting discussion there. I think people will enjoy uh, your, I I would say our conversation about arena, but I don't think that's an appropriate way to describe it. So your uh, soapbox about arena. (laughs) And I I appreciate, I appreciate it when you let me rant. (laughs) Well, you know, I just say here, play path, let you get it out. (laughs) All right. I will, uh, I will see you next week, James. 
Thank you, Travis, and we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank <laughs> you.